0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Sixty years ago, the week this podcast was recorded, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, shot by Lee Harvey Oswald, who was himself shot and killed a few days later. Those of us born in the first years after World War II were old enough to remember the event vividly, this week i'm thinking about those days and the expression living memory it's odd to think that i have become living memory about those days and the era that kennedy's death overshadowed but i'm not alone there are plenty of us repositories of living memory still around like economic historian richard parker Richard spent three decades teaching at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He's a past president of the Americans for Democratic Action, a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and, most importantly for this conversation, author of a widely praised biography of Kennedy intimate, John Kenneth Galbraith. But before we start the conversation, some news. I have launched an FRDH First Rough Draft of History Substack at f r d h first rough draft of history all one word dot substack dot com this written version allows me to be more responsive to news events and do what i do put news into its historical context nothing comes out of nothing and even smart people have no idea of why a news event suddenly happens that's what i try to fill in the Substack, like the podcast, is free, but you can become a paid subscriber or donate. And I really do need subscriptions and donations to keep doing this work. Now, back to the living memories of myself and Richard Parker. Our conversation went down paths I didn't expect, but it began in the obvious
1: place. Where were you when you heard President Kennedy had been shot? I was a senior in high school in Southern California, and I got the news as a public address announcement uh, by the principal. Uh, and it must have been about late morning, eleven o'clock, ten o'clock in the morning in California, because I think that would have been the right, the same time in Dallas when Kennedy dies, and I, I i i don't know how to describe it it became a kind of fraught dream world almost instantly i remember standing up and i remember uh girls in the class cr- uh, crying out and you know boys just st- i mean their eyes widened we were stunned uh, you know it we we grew up in the shadow of Nuclear war in that particular part of Southern California where I grew up. This was the aerospace quadrant, the southwestern quadrant of Los Angeles. And so the fathers of many, many of my classmates were either engineers or skilled machinists building bombers, missiles, satellites, all the appurtenances that went with America's capacity to conduct nuclear. War And it had been just the previous fall that we'd all had to practice uh, duck and cover for the Cuban missile crisis. I mean it was just it was just a little more than a year I think uh, october of sixty two was the missile crisis, and November of sixty three was the assassination and so the unworldliness of crawling under our little wood and metal desks in a high school the north-facing windows of which all looked out on a vast landscape of uh, aircraft manufacturing plants and los angeles airport and so therefore you know that area of uh, of the united states was high after new york and washington and the strategic air command on the soviet missile target list and so The idea that somehow we would survive was unimaginable, and we had gotten through it. And now here, a year later, something even more unimaginable had just happened, and there was no place to turn. There was no flash of nuclear Armageddon, but there was. And it was as if, I think, a kind of atom bomb had exploded in all of our lives. And left us not wiped out, but irradiated. It's kind of we were there, our bodies were there, our we could see one another, it was the same, but somehow some part of us had suddenly died and we didn't know what we were living through. We were 17 years old.
0: I similarly um the principal came over the tannoy in in school and said, I have so whatever announcement, and I want you to all mm-hmm. act like Americans, the president has been shot. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, what does that mean to a 13, 14 year old? I mean, mm-hmm. what does it mean? Mm-hmm. The fact that my teacher raced from the room because mm-hmm. she collapsed. It, hysterics is the only word. Yeah. Um, Italian woman, Roman Catholic. So that, that that's part of what made jack kennedy jack kennedy Mm. but it it is a kind of discontinuity in in your expectations of what the world is there's a president Mm. nobody Mm. shoots the president right and i I think it's really hard to encompass for a teenager and you know it explains my own befuddlement looking at my parents reaction Mm. my mother's especially Mm. it it was as if her own mother or father had died right and
1: shot not died right Right. murdered right so there was that stunning first sense and a, a kind of zombie like next several hours and what i remember was that the teacher said i think we're going to dismiss class now and i think all of you should plan to go home. Uh, there's no reason for school to continue today. And in fact, a few minutes later, the principal came on and said exactly that, that the school was going to close and that people should get their books and coats and uh, plan on heading home. And what I remember is the next traumatic, eh, trauma. I hate the word trauma, the next iridescent moment of that day was walking down the hall and uh, encountering a kid I knew who I didn't dislike but didn't particularly like Uh, and I was like can you imagine what's just it's incredible and he said well chickens coming home to roost and what I understood in that moment was that his father was a member of the john birch society and for young people it's impossible to understand that those many years ago there was an extreme right wing in the united states and its apotheosis was this little organization called the john birch society and so this fellow 17 year old was voicing the cynicism of his father about the malignancy of kennedy's administration and of Kennedy coming home in the form of this violence that had taken Kennedy's life a few moments or a few hours earlier. And I stopped and I said, what did you say? And he said, chickens coming home to roost. And I slugged him. I knocked him to the ground.
0: It's funny that you tell this story because infamously, Malcolm X, when asked what he thought of the assassination said chickens coming
1: home to roost really oh you're right well i forgot i I
0: forget i don't know the context in which it i mean that that quote followed him for two years until he himself was assassinated the extreme of of the event brings out i think the extremity of people you mentioned john birch society richard had had your politics already formed or you were you kind of brought up in the democratic family or
1: so i I mean you have to understand i was brought up by an episcopal clergyman and his wife and my father was the rector of a very large church which episcopal churches aren't normally Uh thought of as big but when I graduated from high school, there were almost a thousand kids in the Sunday school. That's how big this church was. And my mother once said of my father that he thought that the Holy Trinity was Father's son and Franklin Roosevelt. So when you ask, was I brought up in a democratic household, I was, but it wasn't an you know, an Irish Catholic, you know, sentimental uh, help the working class. It was somehow that Roosevelt, an Episcopalian, represented a kind of deep American value system that was democratic in the large D sense, but also democratic in the small D sense. And so I was very much raised with a kind of liberal Christian idealism that was characteristic of mainline Protestantism at that point. As
0: you look back now, as a a historian, an economic historian, biographer of a Kennedy. I don't know if you'd call him an inner circle or what, but I mean a Kennedy advisor, someone who knew Jack Kennedy. Yeah. how do you see his elimination as affecting Democratic politics? This is such a difficult question because there's the the effect of the assassination on the democratic party there's the effect of the assassination on just the course of american history in the 1960s it's the most dramatic decade there's just generally how it affects people's view of what society is why don't you choose which of those three paths you want to walk down and i'll bring you back to the other two all right they don't hook up
1: No, no, that's fine. Um, Well, look, let me start with the reference you made to my biography of John Kenneth Galbraith, the, the great Harvard economist, who, in fact, was part of Kennedy's inner circle. He was Kennedy's ambassador to India, but he was someone Kennedy looked to routinely for advice on economic policy, but also, as Vietnam became an issue in Kennedy's administration, for advice on foreign policy. So that one of the things we know is that as early as the fall of 1961 with Kennedy, just early in office, his first year as president, he was being counseled by advisors, Max Taylor, who was his principal military advisor, Mac Bundy, who uh, was his chief of staff, Dean Rusk, who was his secretary of state that, um, Vietnam threatened to become a falling domino in this giant domino game, apparently, that we were playing with both the Soviet and the Chinese uh, communists. And Kennedy, surprisingly, in private, uh, uh, not publicly, was deeply skeptical uh, of the advice he was getting. And taylor and uh, walt rostow another one of his senior advisors in the white house took a trip to vietnam in the fall of 61 and came back specifically recommending that the u.s begin to place troops in south vietnam and uh, Galbraith, at the point at that same point, was ambassador to India, and it happened that India was the chair of the Three Nation Committee that was designed to oversee peace in Indochina following the evacuation of the French in the mid nineteen fifties. And so, Galbraith, through the Indians, uh, had a great deal of insider information about what was going on in Vietnam and Indochina generally. And his own view, influenced by the Indians' insight, was that it would be a hopeless disaster if the United States thought that it could win a ground war in Vietnam, that the strength of the North Vietnamese and of the Viet Cong and the popularity of the Viet Cong among Vietnamese peasants was such that this would be a a sinkhole. And we have lots of private Cable traffic between Kennedy and the president that bypassed the State Department uh, because Kennedy wanted direct—I'm a- sorry—Galbraith wanted direct access to Kennedy and used his close friendship with Kennedy to carry via that private access his message, his version of what was at uh, at risk, and so. Kennedy, in a very strategic moment in the late fall of 1961, under pressure from his senior White House advisors, agreed to put in 15,000 non-combatant troops to Vietnam. But a year later, in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, Kennedy's own uh, growing belief In early 1962, that the madness of the Cold War required him to step back from the brink made a strategic turn. And we now know that in the spring of 1962, Kennedy told Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, to go to Honolulu for a meeting with the military command, the Naval Air Force and Army commands that were shaping up for a war in Vietnam, that he was to go and tell them that Kennedy planned to withdraw those 15,000 non-combat troops and would not put combat troops into Vietnam that he in uh, further wanted all 15,000 troops out of Vietnam shortly after the 1964 election, because he didn't want to risk in 1963 having the withdrawal of troops become an issue that Barry Goldwater and the conservatives could exploit. But, and here's what's, I think, so poignant and significant kennedy specifically told mcnamara that he wanted the first thousand troops removed by november 1963 and that's of course the month in which kennedy is assassinated and the troops are not removed wow that
0: is extraordinary
1: Mm -hmm. so to your first question i i share after a lot of my own independent research into declassified Traffic among Kennedy's advisors, including with uh, uh, Galbraith, but not just Galbraith, um, and also looking at the exchanges that went on among Kennedy's pro war advisors, that Kennedy was absolutely determined not to get the United States dragged into a war in Vietnam, and that had he lived, the chances of that war were much, much lower. I won't say impossible. I won't say that circumstances couldn't have changed. But as of November 1963, the likelihood of U.S. engagement in Vietnam was on a downward glide path uh, that was about to end that commitment. I was
0: thinking the other day, because I've written about this era a lot, that It's only 90 days, almost exactly 90 days between the March on Washington for Civil Rights and Justice, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, Mm -hmm. and the assassination. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson, who didn't have John Kenneth Galbraith whispering in his ear wisdom about Vietnam, went the opposite direction. But on the other hand, he did guilt the country out and the democratic party Mm -hmm. southern senators out over the murder and managed to get the extraordinary civil rights legislation of 64 and the voting rights act in 65 passed and there's a connection there as well informed speculation would jack kennedy have gone as far as fast as lyndon johnson did given the crisis opportunity he was handed
1: you know i've thought about that a lot and i've talked with people like taylor branch uh who was martin luther king's great biographer um and uh also with fred Logaval, who here at harvard is working on the second volume of this magisterial re-examination of the kennedy presidency i don't think that we would have had the civil rights act or the voting rights act in 64 and 65 uh, or if we had them in the in the strength and the clarity uh, with which those bills emerged it took the murder of john f kennedy to pass those particular bills and i i i, I do think that for all of For all of the complaints of my generation at the time about Lyndon Johnson, I think that Lyndon Johnson, in the aftermath of John Kennedy's murder, understood that this tragedy was also an opportunity, not unlike the way that Sumner and uh, others saw the murder of Abraham Lincoln in 1865. And moved quickly over the next three to four years to pass the critical constitutional amendments and the enabling federal legislation that at least began a process of ending not just slavery, but the most hideous consequences of inequality that segregation would reimpose. So, you know, I think had Jack Kennedy not been killed, would we have gotten civil rights legislation exactly the way Johnson was able to push it through? No, I don't think so. I think that it would have been a more prolonged struggle. I think Kennedy would have uh, had great difficulty moving that legislation. I, I think Kennedy would have defeated Goldwater soundly, in 64, and probably would have come back with a strong Democratic majority in both houses of Congress. But that Democratic majority would still have contained senior Southern senators and members of the House who were utterly committed, absolutely genetically, morally, institutionally, imaginatively committed to the preservation of segregation. And as a Northern Catholic Irish politician, I'm not sure that Kennedy could have done what Lyndon Johnson, the Texan, was able to do in those mid-60 years on civil rights.
0: One of the things, you know, when I asked you about the Democratic Party, I'm just thinking that, you know, the famous quote, maybe he said it, maybe he didn't, when Lyndon Johnson signed that, the civil rights, we've lost the South for a generation. Well, it turns out it's permanent. It's not a generation. Right. We've lost white Southerners pretty much, except for all those guys, all my friends from New York and Philadelphia who've moved down to the Research Triangle in North Carolina. Um, you know, they, they've just lost the white voter in the South pretty much, or the majority of them. Right. That's one way in which the Democratic Party was... Affected the war, affected the Democratic Party because its natural intake of the next generation had some severe doubts about the party. And if they wanted to get involved, as Mm -hmm. you did, wanted to Mm -hmm. find people who were against the war. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other ways in which John Kennedy being taken off the board, to use a modern euphemism? Mm change the Democratic Party how it is today even
1: well I mean I I've long been influenced by the idea that the United States has to be thought of in the plural rather than the singular the very description of the United States is is a neo logistic construction that emerged after uh, the Civil War in the late 19th century. Up until then, it was much more common to have the United States referred to in the plural. And it speaks to the distinct variety of regions and the ways in which regions developed in the colonial period that set in place differences in the United States that adhere today. I mean, we talk today as if the Republican Party was not just about the white South, that it's all about white, non-college educated, da 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 and people point to the Midwest and the mountain states as other Trump-red states. But when I went back and looked at the 2020 Electoral College results, Michael, what struck me with uh, such force was that when I added up the electoral votes that Donald Trump received in 2020, 80% of them came from states that had been slave-owning states in 1860.
0: Okay, but I but I was I was talking about more to do with your own initiation cuz I I know about this um into you know being an activist in the Democratic Party and yeah. how much of that comes out of your own experience in Vietnam war protest or Whatever, sure. and how much of it is an extension of this terrible event of John F. Kennedy being shot dead?
1: So, what what I can reconstruct from memory is this: that by the late nineteen fifties, um, I was already deeply affected by what I was seeing as a teen or even a preteen in the pages of Life magazine and on the little black and white 17-inch TV screen that we turned to for 15 minutes of news at 6 p.m. every night. And what I was seeing as a boy were pictures of uh, whites uh, assaulting black teenagers trying to enter a school in Little Rock, Of uh, of the National Guard and the U.S. Army being called out to protect kids who were my age going to school. This was a world that was utterly alien to me. My 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 small encounter, personal direct encounter with racism, emblemized by segregation, had occurred in about 1958 or 59 when, on a summer vacation trip, we stopped. in Oklahoma City at a gas station, and uh, uh, I went around back to use the bathroom, and came running back to the car, pulled my mother out of the car, dragged her back to the back of the filling station, and demanded that she explain to me why colored water was not coming out of the water fountain marked colored water. I, for some reason, thought that maybe the the water should be blue or orange or yellow. Or it's I thought is this some kind of free soda pop equivalent in this strange place called Oklahoma? I didn't understand because it was not part of my lived experience, but what was invading me was the, the pages of life magazine and CBS evening news in a way that was as powerful as anything that young people today get by listening to social media or going on YouTube or, you know, being influenced by influencers, I guess would be the, the, the vernacular today. So it starts before Kennedy becomes president. My personal experience, though, is shaped by the fact that the Los, An- Los Angeles was the site of the Democratic Convention in 1960. And my father took my younger brother and me up to the forum, which was this big basketball uh, sporting, sporting stadium where the, it was taking place. I actually got to shake hands with JFK on a rope line um and so at a i must have been 14 years 13 just about 14 i got to shake hands with jfk and so and there's i have no picture of you like with there's bill no, Clinton shaking hands
0: with jfk not, Richard, not you a, could have become president
1: oh i'm so sorry i missed i missed that opportunity and i went to boy state just like bill clinton but never mind um and so i remember my for the fall of my freshman year in high school i would get out of Class, uh, I don't know, 2 30 or 3 and walk home. Immediately get on my three speed Schwinn bicycle and bicycle down to the local Democratic Party headquarters where I would spend two hours stuffing envelopes or stapling signs onto sticks or answering the phone or whatever. That was my inauguration into conventional. Uh, American presidential electoral politics as a 13-year-old working for Kennedy Johnson in 1960. And so when Kennedy comes into office and I hear this inaugural address, uh, something opens in me, something larger becomes part of who I am. And I'm sure that what's happening now as I look back on it is that the kind of idealism that my father found in his own church work, right? uh, That framed so much of what he thought about politics in the morality of a mainline Protestant idealism uh, was suddenly reified in John F. Kennedy's presidency. That here now for me, a budding teenager was a new world ahead of me and for my peers. Where we could make the difference, we could somehow join the peace corps. We could do things in a world that would make the world match whatever the ideals were that we nascently felt uh, uh, in uh, in our own in our own imaginations. So it was an extraordinary moment in in that sense because. There was so there was so much authentic optimism that Kennedy brought to young people like me. And it was palpable. It was absolutely palpable. You could see it in the smiles in people's faces and the way they talk to one another and the, the hopefulness. And, you know, it was very important. That's
0: as good an explanation without my even asking the question of how people develop their political allegiances in life it takes and it takes a lot to shake that um which is why the jesuits get you at five and show you the man and if your father takes you to shake the hand of the president future possible president you will be inducted into the faith in a way that is unshakable
1: you bet you bet. yeah, no, absolutely, and it's the and it's these very personal moments that stamp you as explicable in larger historical force terms, but which you don't experience at the time as larger historical forces. You experience entirely personally,
0: and that that I guess goes away to explaining why, when the fabric of space time is rent in half by an assassin's bullet. Mm-hmm. You you feel that it is unreal. No, it's real. It's real. It's real, right. but you can't control your emotions. You right. can't control anything, right? You know. But to be more specific about, from nineteen sixty eight to seventy two, mm-hmm. the sixty eight election in which probably the the most liberal Democrat ever nominated was decried by the younger members of the democratic party as a warmongering fascist right hubert humphrey through right. 1972 and, and managing to get george mcgovern at the head of the national ticket on the yeah. um against a strong incumbent richard nixon you were you got involved in some of that politics of course how, how much of that was trying to recover something that you felt had been lost when Kennedy was shot.
1: So let me, before I jump to 68, let me fill in a little bit between November 63 and June of 1968, when I graduated from college and begin this very important 68 to 72 period. The thing that's really important is that it seemed initially after Uh, Johnson's election in uh, the fall of 1964, uh, uh, just a year after Kennedy's assassination, that there was still reason for enormous hope that his announcement of the war on poverty, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the imminence of the passage of the uh, Voting Rights Act, all for people like me was very exciting. I had uh, uh gone from southern california as far away as I possibly could to dartmouth college in uh, uh rural new england. and dartmouth was by no means a liberal or left ivy league campus. it was probably one of the three or two or three more conservative or most conservative uh of places. it was all male. Uh, there were no young women, girls as we called them in those days. it was all boys. Uh, It was 95% white. Uh, It was overwhelmingly either mainline Protestant or Reform or secular Jewish. If there were people underrepresented at a place like Dartmouth, it was an underrepresentation of ethnic Catholics. And I don't think in the four years that I was there, I ever met anyone who referred to himself as an evangelical Protestant. Those worlds were just not part of it. But it was a world that offered someone like me opportunity. By the time of my sophomore year, I had signed up for something called the Dartmouth Talladega Project, which sent me south to rural Alabama to work in 1965 in uh, a a, a Vista project in in north northeast Alabama by uh, the time I got to my senior year, I had signed up to go back to Alabama to teach at Miles College in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, as part of a very liberal attempt to draw young, uh, bright Ivy leaguers into helping a historical, historic Black college recover accreditation. Uh, so I ended up Uh, teaching uh, a class in introduction to philosophy, and also joined the Miles College Marching Band, the only white member of a 120-member marching organization, in which I largely made a fool of myself, but was the source of enormous uh, uh, laughter for uh, a lot of uh, uh, folks who saw the Miles College Marching Band try to perform with me in it at halftime at a number of football games. Um, But Those experiences of actually being in the South and of beginning to differentiate parts of the South from one another to understand the complex layers. Uh, I, for example, at one point suggested to a couple of my friends at Miles that we should spend a weekend and drive over to New Orleans and just check out New Orleans. And my Black Alabamian friends looked at me and said, there is no way that we are getting in a car with you, Richard, and driving across Mississippi to to New Orleans (laughs) unless we put you in the trunk or on the floor and cover you with blankets. I mean, the sense of the danger that Mississippi represented to Alabamians was was palpable. That was one experience. The other was we uh, were there in the fall of 1966 I guess. Yes, fall of 67, when Martin Luther King actually had to come back and serve like two weeks in jail in Birmingham, Alabama for crimes he'd been convicted of four years earlier. So King is at the Birmingham jail uh, and uh, we're organizing uh, marches in support of Dr. King. And then we uh, uh, shift our focus to trying to desegregate a restaurant called the Catfish King, which had decided that the 1965 Civil Civil Rights Act just didn't apply to them. So there we were, maybe 50, mostly black, but a handful of white marchers outside the Catfish King, where people were throwing stones at us and a couple of cases, beer cans. And so you had this very real sense of, oh, so this is what the South can be like. And I always remember coming back from the experience, uh, and we were I was living with a Black family right near the campus. The father was a, was a dentist, and he invited me after seeing that I was willing to go march around for desegregation of Catfish King to come to the local meeting of the Abraham Lincoln Republican Club, of which he was president, and which was, of course, an all-Black Republican club. So I have memories of the Republican Party in the South that are actually quite affirmative, but represent a different time and a different Republican Party than the one that dominates Alabama and the South today. Mm -hmm. So anyway, all of that's going on. At the same time, everything about the war under Johnson is from the point of view of people like me getting worse and worse. And so I'm participating in uh, various demonstrations. I go down to Washington uh, to march. Finally, in the spring of 1968, my senior year, I go down to Boston and I, at a large rally in uh, uh, on the Boston Common, attended by 20 or 30 thousand people, I become one of about 50 young men who choose to hand in their draft card. And uh, this is a step forward in the anti-war protest system from burning your draft card, which had become very popular a couple of years earlier, to actually handing in your draft card. And the difference was this. If you burned your draft card, it wasn't necessarily clear that your local draft board would ever find out about it. And so it was a wonderful symbolic act that fed support for anti-war demonstrations But it didn't necessarily have the consequence of actually being an act of resistance because you could go on doing whatever you were doing. By choosing to hand in your draft card, what you were saying was, and we want these cards mailed back to our draft board so that they know. And so, of course, it was a direct invitation for further confrontation that was meant to be a further challenge to the system that we found that was so corrupt there are two important things the, the the one that i i want to focus on we can talk about the other is that i hitchhiked back after the, that that afternoon after the demonstration to hanover and ended up talking with a a housemate of mine i lived in a senior honor society on the campus and the housemate was a was was a was a friend not a close friend but a friend who was a member of Naval ROTC, and he had signed up for ROTC because the scholarship made it easier for him and his family to pay for uh, an Ivy League education. And he he knew, he was a senior by then in college, we were only a month or two away from graduation, that he was going to be assigned to Naval Air Training and was hoping to become a Naval or Marine Corps pilot. And so back and forth, we talked for hours from seven o'clock at night till three in the morning about the war. And I thought finally, after a lot of discussion, that he might, Robbie might be persuaded to resign his Naval Razi Commission. It was a complicated thing, but I was really thinking, oh, well, I've really made a difference in... Someone else's life, not just mine, I've handed in my draft card. i would explained to him why I'd done it. He was deeply troubled by the war, but at the same time felt obliged by the scholarship and da-da-da-da-da. He ultimately didn't turn down the scholarship. He ultimately became a pilot. He flew off of an aircraft carrier uh, two years later and is still MIA over Vietnam to this day. Uh, and there's always been a part of me, I, I I keep a rubbing from the Vietnam War Memorial of his name uh, above my dresser in the bedroom. And I, I will go to my grave, remembering Robbie and remembering that evening's conversation. And what at that moment seemed like a hopeful way of carrying two of us out of the, the war making machinery of the United States. And ultimately only one of us uh instead so Mm.
0: this is addressing the era the Kennedy era Mm -hmm. rather than the Mm mound and of course it's interesting to think about had he not been shot and then the war had not happened you might still have ended up at Dartmouth You might well have ended up at Dartmouth and you might well have ended up going down south as well, since the civil rights movement would have carried on.
1: Absolutely. But
0: not this. Not the war. Right. Mm. And of course, if it was the (laughs) spring of 1968 when all this happened, it would have been the spring when Martin Luther King was shot and then Bobby Kennedy was shot, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which. Absolutely was. When I sit here in Britain, and I've said this on air, I've written it in essays that I've read on air, the um, that people don't understand. I mean, if you just looked at the headlines from 1963 to 1968, major assassinations of political figures absolutely. in a country, absolutely, race riots every summer, hundreds of millions of dollars of damage, hundreds of people killed, thousands imprisoned. From race rights. Mm-hmm. You would think you're describing one of those Latin American countries that the US is far too fond of meddling in their internal affairs. Mm-hmm. And what people don't get is that for as awful as those headlines are, taken in isolation, without any context, is that it really was a time of tremendous hope. It that was the struggle that was going on. I mean, <clears throat> martyrs were being made, true martyrs genuine martyrs and yet people carried on and kept pushing on and in general good cheer at mm-hmm. least up until 1968 mm-hmm. that big problems in the country were being addressed they weren't being swept under and the spirit i i identify it with the spirit of our fathers generation you know mm-hmm. they beat the depression they beat fascism mm-hmm. and it was some of that spirit that put people you know, down on Boston Common saying, I'm not going to join the war machine because I can see clearly this is not moral. Right. I wish that people understood that. And I think quite a bit of that is something that came when you were talking earlier about John F. Kennedy, you know, bringing a certain enthusiasm into people's lives Maybe not the John Birch Society kid who was your mm-hmm. classmate, but mm-hmm. you know, that there really was a sense that, you know, I remember that gen- it was a generational thing. My, he was only a year or so older than my dad. And, and there was that kind of, it's like, you know, oh God, look, Bruce Springsteen's playing at the White House. You know, he's one of mine. Mm-hmm. And look at how far we're coming. We're going to run the country now. Mm-hmm. And all that seem to get lost by the end of the decade Mm -hmm. um you can only kill so many leadership cadres before the move. before a political party loses its way i guess Mm -hmm. i i I wish people could understand that
1: that's a very important point and i i can't emphasize i mean there was mixed in with the anger about the war a sense of deep patriotism i mean it's it's, i think it's very hard for people to understand i'm a generation of boys who grew up with the awareness that our fathers had fought and defeated the nazis and japanese fascism and italian fascism and had done so heroically as best we understood it i remember that one of the most popular tv series in the 1950s was something called victory at sea which was Uh, a a retelling through documentary footage of the U.S. Navy's uh, role in the Second World War. And the music for it was composed by Richard Rogers, the great Broadway composers. And so it had swelling chords and, you know, lyric melodies. And I mean, my heart still beats a little faster just thinking about watching what was told to me as the heroism of America's fighting forces, uh, fighting against these uh, figures of enormous darkness, and winning. And for me, the and I think for a lot of the young people of the nineteen sixties, the horror of the Vietnam War was not that we were fighting, but that we couldn't create a story that made us heroes. That there was something much darker going on. That this was not no. This was not a war that America should be fighting. And it took quite a while for me to overcome this sense of a violated patriotism that went with what was being done in the name of my country.
0: The third, the third thing that I mentioned was about American society, and I, I just want to be more specific. To what degree do do you think that the mystery that still persists? you may not think it's a mystery you may be satisfied that there was more to the assassination of john f kennedy than one slight <laughs> one disturbed fellow who was a, a marine marksman yeah. getting lucky mm-hmm. three shots one chance mm-hmm. i i remain unconvinced that the full story has been told and i do wonder to what degree that doubt from this one incident has corroded and corrupted american society
1: mm-hmm. i think i am with you and with the majority of americans of the belief that we do not know the whole story that important actors important facts are missing from the public record like you i've watched repeated attempts or seeming attempts by Congress to pass legislation to force the U.S. government to disgorge everything that it has. Uh, And I've seen them, for the most part, seem to turn up a lot of additional but not decisive information that would answer who was behind or were there others there that day in Dallas, etc., and I'm still shocked that as recently as the Biden administration, there are some papers that remain classified for reasons that I do not understand this long after the event. But I've also reached a point, Michael, where I feel like it's important to just move forward. Um, that I think that there was in the <clears throat> 1870s and 1880s, uh, a belief that many americans held that there was a larger set of hand, <clears throat> set of hands behind john wilkes booth <clears throat> and i you know i have scholar friends who were working on lincoln's biography who are quite eloquent about conspiracies that were being undertaken in canada and Virginia and a few other places that suggest that the Confederate government was in fact trying to finance and arrange an assassination of President Lincoln. But, you know, the the documentation has never fully come together. And I suspect that the Kennedy story is going to remain like the Lincoln story for our generation, the unresolved, unanswered question. I think that the assassination of him, of King, of Schwerner, Cheney, Goodman, of dozens of others, scores of others, has left a mark in my generation that malignantly we have passed down. And it has come down to too many young people without that optimism that was simultaneously uh, part of our generation. And that, to me, is tragic. Um, because with it has come a new way for many of the students who I taught uh, over 30 years uh, of teaching at Harvard, of a new generation that emphasizes its fragility, its vulnerability, its victimization. And I don't ever recall feeling words like fragile or victimized as being the vocabulary that I and my colleagues in the 1960s felt about our situation. We we were in some ways robust and energetic and embracing the possibilities of the world, even as we pushed back against what we saw as the decrepitude of the old. And... It's it's a different vocabulary that suggests a different posture and self-confidence. And to the degree that it represents a lack of self-confidence about being able to shape the world, I'm heartbroken. And Heartbroken that somehow this is part of the legacy that we have passed on to these otherwise wonderful young people.
0: Listening to you talk just now, I'm remembering that one of the key words of President Kennedy's vocabulary was vigor, pronounced pronounced in his his South Boston trying to be posh, can't do it way, you know, vigor, with great vigor. And, you know, all these things, a continuation of this notion of democratic political leadership, of being the happy warrior, Al Smith. Mm Mm-hmm. Irish Catholic, didn't mm-hmm. didn't get to the presidency because of prejudice. Franklin Roosevelt, who realized that actually in the middle of a depression, a bit of optimism doesn't go amiss from the leader of the country. Mm-hmm. And it's 60 years. And when I say Al Smith, Franklin Roosevelt, and Jack Kennedy, that's only 40. I think that its absence is a cost that we pay to this day, from the assassination. And again, something that you wish you could convey to younger people, that be positive and embrace and approach, approach um, obstacles with vigor, mm-hmm. and you can overcome them. Anyway, you know, I,
1: I want to be careful because there are young people with whom I've worked on a number of issues ranging most recently from fossil fuel divestment to uh, uh, the rights of uh, to unionize as workers on university campuses to uh, a whole host of other issues. And they do have that kind of tenacious courage that I think was part of the best of my generation but but again i i i do feel like there's there's a lack of the self-confident rambunctiousness that i treasure as part of the memory of uh, of that time i mean we haven't talked about sex drugs and rock and roll i don't know that it's appropriate to talking about the 60s no we're we're honoring
0: yeah. the memory of john f kennedy and yes he did indulge in sex yeah. Not so much rock and roll. Frank Sinatra, I think, was was his mixtape. But right. uh, so I, I don't know that we need that today. Right. Maybe another time. It, it's important to to note this murder. I think the culture was already heading towards an explosion of a cultural. Mm-hmm. Par- I'm talking about culture in the artistic mm-hmm. sense. That mm-hmm. paradigm was already shifting, but right. that without. The man in the white house and then his murder by shadowy forces i think was an accelerant a big fuel accelerant to what happened over the next several years after his assassination
1: michael the way I, you know I, I think about it as an economist and i also think that franklin roosevelt had created a long presidential cycle in the 1930s by structuring a new political coalition that created Democratic majority, this strange hybrid uh, confection of the white South plus ethnic Northern Catholic workers at a res- residual white Protestant uh, Midwestern uh, base. And by the 1960s, it was coming apart. But think about why it was coming apart. And essentially, the message of the New Deal, and then even of the Second World War, was that we were a people together struggling to overcome common problems and to defend uh, an idea of a democratic society, small d democratic society, uh, that was part of this ever- Uh, growing optimism about endless progress that America was supposed to represent. We were moving steadily forward, forward, forward. We were the ultimate Whig achievement of the 20th century. And for all our faults, we knew those faults, we were moving forward. And what comes crashing down very quickly in the Kennedy Johnson years, but most especially triggered in popular imagination by the Kennedy assassination, is suddenly that we're caught in the responsibilities of being an empire, not of being a free democratic state. And that the responsibilities of empire justify us doing things which are immeasurably uh, unreconcilable with the values, that Roosevelt has used to create this coalition. And we're trying to decolonize the racist structure of the white South domestically. And that's going hard. That work is hard. And at the same time, suddenly we find ourselves expanding our imperial responsibilities in Southeast Asia. And the weight of those those imperial struggles proves too great for the Roosevelt coalition.
0: That's a very interesting interpretation. I sometimes think, I, I describe it as, I, I, I'm a few years younger than you, We. it's like arriving at a party that's mm-hmm. already been going on for about three or four hours. <laughs> and people are starting to leave just as you arrive. Mm-hmm. And the food table is thoroughly picked clean. And all that's left is half drunk <laughs> bottles of wine and, and other forms of alcohol. Ah, <laughs> Looked like it was fun.
1: Yeah. No, Look, I think that
0: so. I could talk to you forever, Richard. Let me ask you, do you ever talk to about this to your sons? You have grown sons. And yeah. how do they relate to this catastrophic event sixty years ago? Do they even care?
1: This Thanksgiving weekend, I've set aside Saturday to have a father-son dinner. So it's by coincidence that you asked. I see them now as both grown young men. One's 31 and launched on a successful uh, legal career. And the other's uh, 26 and in medical school. And soon enough will be uh, a doctor. And I, I'm just now at a stage where I've told both of them I want to establish a man-to-man relationship with the two of you, not just a father-son relationship, and see how we weave those together. And they've both been really responsive. I think they don't know quite what dad has in mind. Dad isn't entirely sure that dad knows what dad has in mind, but telling some of this story to them in a way that I hope at 26 and 31, they can hear with new ears, that, that they can better appreciate some of what it was that shaped me. But I I'm glad you raised this question because it's a it's a subject of conversation that is going to be further explored in just a matter of days. I'll report back to you.
0: Richard Parker, thank you very
1: much. Delighted to talk with you, Michael, as always.
0: And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Please do as Richard Parker will do this weekend with his sons and share our stories from that time with someone younger living memory. It's a precious thing to still be alive and remember. Thanks.